0: This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Paul Gio. Paul is the vice president of product at Creative Market, an online design marketplace. On this episode... Paul discussed how to market a marketplace, and also talked about design, analytics, and how he went from marketing to product management. Enjoy.
1: Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes.
2: Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. And across from me in studio, Paul, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here. We miss Lauren, though. Shout out to Lauren, who's... Yeah, where's she at today? She's probably surfing. When When in doubt, she's surfing. No, she's probably working hard on the Marketing Trends. Newsletter where Lauren's Corner is going to make a triumphant return sometime soon. But yeah, so you just have me today, for better or for worse. We want to get into a few different things about your backgrounds. You are currently a VP of product at Creative Market. That is right. Yeah. Which is interesting because you just switched over. So we definitely want to talk about that. You know, back in the day, you had an interesting start at Creative Market, so we'll get into that, and then we're going to talk about marketing a marketplace, how to market and grow one. Talk about prosumers, which is a new term that Paul introduced me to. Talk about why design's important, and uh, and you know our typical general marketing advice. So uh, let's get into it. How did you get into marketing?
3: Uh, that is a good question. Um... I, I kind of stumbled into marketing. It wasn't something that I was intentional about early on in my career. The short of it is I was in college, taking various business classes, trying to figure out what I liked finance was kind of appealing to me and marketing ended up actually being the shortest way out of college i actually had a lot of ambition to get out of college when i was in college yeah. and just i wanted to do my own thing i wanted to start my own business i have a family who've all been very entrepreneurial and uh, some of them don't even believe in college and so marketing was that route and then i just fell into it and the more that i learned the more that i ended up uh, kind of respecting and appreciating marketing
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how, you know, obviously everybody's journey is super different, but how your marketing kind of skill set, your toolkit that you get in college may or may not get you ready for the actual, actual work. It doesn't translate, at least in my experience, if that's representative of anything. But you did do some copywriting, Mm -hmm.
3: uh, which
2: I think is really interesting. Any lessons from, from the copywriting days
3: that helped you? Yeah, I actually felt like copywriting was a skill that I'm really, really glad that I developed early on. And part of that's just because when you're writing, you have to keep the end user in mind. You have to understand their psychology. You have to understand their motivations um, and really appeal to them. And so it's kind of a foundational layer of marketing. And again, it was serendipitous. I just kind of got pushed into it. Uh, It was something that I could do. I happened to be okay at. And the rest is history.
2: So tell me about Creative Market. What was your first entry into the company? What does the company do? And what's kind of your current role there now?
3: Yeah, so I'll I'll talk about the company first and then talk about my entry point. Uh, So the company is a design marketplace. So we sell design assets. So if you're not familiar with design asset space, uh, probably means you're not a designer, which is completely okay. but we sell everything from fonts to UI kits and icons, to illustrations, to mock-up packs, to 3D models that are used in gaming and animation, to stock photos. So we have quite a breadth of content. And because we are a marketplace, we have two sides that we have to cater to. We have uh, a contingent of about 30,000 sellers who are making anywhere from a few dollars to millions of dollars on the platform located all around the world. And then we have about 5.5 and growing million users on the buyer side of the marketplace. And so the company itself was a YC company and just kind of quickly grew. I ended up joining the company right after it was actually acquired by Autodesk. And I was I was talking to the founders, talking to some folks at the company prior to the acquisition. And it was a really interesting concept to me. Um, I had been familiar with the design space because I worked in advertising at an ad agency in the past. And so I was kind of familiar with the customer, some of the pinpoints. It was, it was truly an exceptional team. The team had founded a few other companies in the past, had a lot of success, and so I wanted to be around that pedigree. And uh, they got acquired, and that acquisition almost stopped me from joining. But the promise to me was, hey, we're going to remain an independent startup within this much larger company. And to the best of their ability, they were able to do that. But I don't think any company can truly stay kind of independent and operate as a, a true startup within a larger publicly traded company.
2: Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, and for everybody, it's just creativemarket.com if you want to check it out. Um, And we'll link it in the show notes. One of the things that I find pretty cool, and we can get into this with some of the more marketing strategy type stuff is you have some exclusive free goods on the website. We do have free goods. Those are very, very popular. Yeah. I would imagine (laughs) so. Right. But it's something that Is a very purposeful Mm -hmm. tactic, I'm sure. But with a company so large as Autodesk and, and company, you know, this new YC hot startup in creative market, what was kind of your experience kind of navigating those two worlds until the ultimate spin out?
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we went through a few different phases at Autodesk because the, the larger parent company, Autodesk, of course, went through a few different phases. And so when we first joined Autodesk, we joined what was called the consumer division, which was really this experimental group or Autodesk was essentially throwing money at things. So they tried to build their very first hardware product. It was a 3D printer. They've since shut it down. They ended up making acquisitions across the board from social products that had very little to zero tie into their core business to education products to us. And so initially when we joined it was great because they were throwing money at us. They didn't know what to do with us. They didn't have the consumer pedigree that we had. They'd never built a marketplace before. And so yeah. they really relied on us as experts. But there's always motives there. There's always a desire to try to tie the marketplace or any acquired product into the larger org. And so they tried to force a few things. Luckily, we were able to kind of stand our ground, keep our distance, and remain fairly independent. But the thing that i learned there is big companies move slow we all know that if you ever want to get something done don't join most big companies yeah Uh, uh, you know we we definitely fought some battles to try to kind of spread best practices whether related to product development to product growth to marketing across the organization and it was met with somewhat limited success it really was dependent on kind of the stakeholder involved and was there somebody who actually had buy-in so You know, I think the short of it is we learn the hard way that it can be really hard to actually have an impact at at a larger company. So you were responsible for
2: propelling growth Mm -hmm. within the organizations for a long time. And then you just recently switched over to product. This is like classic marketing (laughs) trends thing that we love to talk about is like the difference between growth being built into the product, marketing being built into the product versus marketing, marketing the product. Why did you make the switch and... Was that an exciting kind of opportunity for you?
3: Yeah. So, you know, I transitioned into product pretty recently and uh, it's, it's been a really good thing. And the reason I say that is because in my mind, there's really these two components of product. One is the product itself, building core value, innovating for the customer, hopefully delivering on that value. And then the second big aspect of it is distribution. And I think distribution is something that is only recently being really understood as being an important lever. It's really the prerequisite because a lot of folks can build a great product, but without distribution, it really doesn't matter. And so I almost think that you need to start distribution first and then kind of backwards engineer the product in some capacity. Totally agree. Um, And so for distribution, I mean, you know, for us, SEO, affiliate program, there's a lot of different channels and these are product-driven channels. And so we actually have dedicated product teams to help optimize these channels, help grow a lot of these channels. And so, you know, I think this is a model that will continue to see rise in popularity where you just have more and more marketing falling underneath products. And I think there's even some orgs that have marketing fully underneath product that can be challenging because you risk kind of building the super org.
2: Yeah. I mean, and I think that that stuff is ultimately like not to, not to like go too crazy on the point, but I mean, I think that a lot of that stuff is like ultimately like semantics, right? Like I think that how you're aligning under that kind of banner is like having people who are marketers that live in product that are managed by a person who's in charge of basically product that has someone who reports to them that's in charge of marketing that product or Mm -hmm. whatever. I I think that there's a little bit of, you know, title and control type stuff and how you segment the opportunity. I think for marketplace specifically, you have to think about all those things. Like you can't have the type of robust marketing organization that a B2B company would have would be, you know, there's just not really the the type of, you know, you're not writing the same type of, you know, case studies. You're Mm -hmm. not really doing the, you're not doing field marketing. You're not doing, you know, you're not doing all of those things. So where does that stuff live? Now, how do you look at marketing as, instead of as a function of product, but as a, as a parallel organization.
3: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think marketing is is a team sport, right? Just like product is a team sport. And so there's, there's the components of marketing that will fall underneath product. And then there's components that, at least for us in Creative Market, definitely don't belong under the realm of product. And the way that I think about it, at least on a high level, is you need the right shepherd for various initiatives. So, you know, when you think about the storytelling component of marketing, when you think about branding and positioning and kind of just telling that narrative, like that most likely will never fall underneath product. And that's something that, you know, I have a background in, in copywriting, so I can do it to a certain degree. I also don't necessarily think it's my strength. And we're in the process of hiring a VP of marketing right now. Hey, uh, yeah Yeah. So if you, if you know anybody. Hey,
2: marketing trends listeners, open rec alert. Hit just email me, ian at mission.org and
3: I'll, I'll get it hooked yeah, up a send blind my intro. way. Yeah. Would love to chat with all those folks. I'm sure you have some really, really talented people in the community, but yeah, we're, you know, we're looking for that person and really looking for that partner because at the end of the day, you know, I think a, a company will grow and a company will, function best when you have both product and marketing working really, really well together. And I think too much of the time you you just have these silos, even at small companies versus like design's a silo, marketing is a silo, products a silo. And it can create really kind of backwards environments. So let's get into marketing a marketplace.
2: What are some of the unique challenges of growing and ultimately like sustaining a marketplace like creative market?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. For us, I mean, actually for any marketplace, you're gonna have the classic chicken and egg problem. And every marketplace is either gonna be constrained on the supply side or the demand side. And so if you're marketing a marketplace, the first thing that you need to figure out for yourself is, where is that constraint Uh, because that's the constraint that of course you want to solve for and over time as a marketplace grows that constraint can change and so for us very early on uh, we had supply side constraint and so it was all about how do we actually get creators on the platform to sell their assets so we did a few different things Uh, we ended up actually creating this referral program and more or less putting a landing page up where people could sign up and then refer folks. And as they referred folks, they would get credit that they could spend. And so we kind of build up this kind of nice critical mass. So when we actually launched the first day, we had a list of 80,000 people that we could launch to. And we were able to take that list and go out to creators on a one-off basis, just doing a lot of things that didn't scale and say, hey, look, we have all these people, they have money in their account already. They want to spend it. Yeah. Um, this is when we're going to launch. Come join the marketplace. And that allowed us to start getting that traction on the on the supply side. But over time, as we've grown, more and more of the constraint has been on the demand side. And so I would say 90 to 95% of our focus is on demand. And how do we actually get more customers for our sellers? Because at the end of the day, the value that we provide to our sellers is customers. Yeah. And it's just, it's distribution, it's eyeballs. The, the interesting thing about our marketplace is the fact that It's demand constraint in aggregate, but there's pockets of supply constraint. And what I mean by that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So if if you think about a category, like let's take stock photos, Uh, it's a really easy example to run with. Most designers who are looking for a stock photo already have a vision in mind of what they're looking for. Yeah. And they're really just looking for the photo that most closely matches. The thing that they're looking for. Yeah. And so let's just imagine it's a St. Bernard running in the snow with an aspen tree in the background. Well, if a buyer comes to our marketplace and we don't have that photo, well, we just lost that sale and they're going to go on to the next marketplace. And so you have to have that critical mass. And the challenging thing about design is there's kind of infinite possibilities. And so you're in some respects, never really done building up supply. So that's one example. There's other examples where we have micro kind of trends popping up. So there's this whole concept of Memphis design, which is really this kind of anti-design trend. It's let's break all the rules of design and put something out there. Wait, what is this? I've never heard of uh, this. I mean, I'm not the best pe- person to necessarily speak about it, but uh, so is a concept called Memphis design. And if you were to look at something that fell underneath the banner of Memphis design, it would just look like a non-designer built it. It would just look like a really... Oh yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, it's like yeah, yeah. Okay, I think it yeah. So sense. it's
3: it's not going to we'll, look polished. We'll post something in the show notes. Yeah, so it's not going to look polished. It's not going to look professional, but it is very intentional. And so, as these little trends pop up, sometimes they pop up and actually are a result of sellers in our marketplace creating them. But oftentimes, they pop up outside of our marketplace, and so then it's up to us to figure out, hey, how do we? Build up supply in this one particular area. And sometimes that's across categories to be able to fill any demand that might come our way. So,
2: yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's an interesting kind of problem to have because there's also some power laws at play there where you do have sellers that are doing millions of dollars uh, in sales. And you have people that are really sought after or certain things that are really sought after. I mean, I, gosh, I am still waiting for the day when some of these stock imagery... That is out there like if i see the guy wearing this is veteran specific but this guy wearing a half business suit half acus which is like an army uniform army combat uniform i'm gonna lose my mind it's like (laughs) i've seen this guy for like 10 years now of like on every single military i have a like job for you now thing but anyways i digress but it but it's this idea that like there's a huge need for those type of assets and there's a huge need for creativity around those and then certain sellers are doing a great job and ultimately all of those people are independent companies right they're a mm-hmm. company of some kind they could be a solopreneur they could be a small business exactly a small studio yeah a small um, studio and have- they need to market themselves do you find it challenging that like how do you accentuate some of the things that they do to promote themselves without like playing favorites or something like that like how does that work
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different components of it. I mean, part of it is search algorithms, right? Obviously, you know, for us as a company, we care about Google, we care about trying to rank high uh, within the SERPs. But for a lot of these people, they have the exact same concern just within our own search pages. And so, what we're trying to do more and more is at the end of the day, Give our customers relevance and ensure that our customers are finding products that match their needs. Because at the end of the day, we're just matching the right person with the right asset or series of assets to kind of fulfill their project needs. And so with that, we can give our, our sellers best practices and essentially make them a marketing force for us. It's something that we have started doing over the course of the last year where we kind of, A, tell them what to create hey, we're seeing this particular trend on the marketplace. You should create things like this. But then B, just give them more and more advice to be able to kind of promote things, whether it's within our search engine or even offsite. i found the golden retriever in in field photo, by the way. Uh, There's probably a few of those. There's a lot, but it's pretty great.
2: Yeah. Uh, $3. It's a bargain. By TC Design and Photos. He's got his tongue hanging out. Maybe we'll link that up in the show notes as well. So what, what are some of those best practices that you see people use that you see sellers use on on the platform?
3: Yeah, so I think there's a few different components here. One is just search engine optimization, as I was just speaking to. So, do you have good tags? Are you writing a relevant description? You know, is it unique to your product? Is it relevant to searchers? So, are people kind of clicking through and buying it? Or are they clicking through and bouncing right back to the search page? So that's a huge component. In addition to that, there's a lot of just kind of marketing 101 things. I think the folks who have had a lot of success on Creative Market understand some of the key components of marketing, things like packaging. One thing that makes our marketplace somewhat unique is the fact that a lot of our screenshots that sell the products are really, really well-designed, right? Mm, These are professional designers. And some of the professional designers who are the most successful will tell you they spend more time on the screenshot than they do on the actual product itself. And so presentation matters, positioning matters. If you go into, let's say, the font section, you'll see all these different fonts. And unlike a lot of other sites, a lot of these fonts are positioned. And so they'll have kind of a certain stylistic aesthetic. And that kind of helps communicate to the, to the buyer, Hey, here's a use case for this particular font. I think, you know, that's another thing that a a lot of folks are doing really well, who are pretty popular in the marketplace is that they kind of show the end use cases. Um, and they show how a particular product can benefit a person's life. So, you know, that's, That's a lot of it. You know, there's other components too that aren't maybe necessarily marketing, but kind of fast customer support in many respects. These people are their own businesses, so they have to respond to customer support very quickly. Otherwise, they're gonna get bad ratings and kind of get demoted within the marketplace. And then a lot of these folks have built up followings outside of our platform. So it could be on Pinterest, it could be on Instagram, could be on Facebook that can go a long way to kind of getting some early traction, early success on the marketplace, and then hopefully writing that. This is some great
2: SEO. I'm looking at a logo right now that's called Hands Heart Love Logo. Yes, That's great. Good (laughs) job. Logo buy. But yeah, I mean, it's an important thing, right? It's uh, it's right place, right time. And if you're looking for Hands Heart Love, that's a great it's a great lesson for marketers that that is the ultimate right place, right time. Yep. What about the alternative to that, which is like, I, I don't know if you have a name for these people, but like the scrollers, right? The people who are just kind of cruising around, they don't know what
3: they're looking for yet, but they're looking for something that catches their eye. Yeah. So we definitely have those people. Uh, when we think about our customer base, we have designers and non-designers. And oftentimes the designer is very intentional about what they're seeking out. They know exactly what is that component? And so then it's just a matter of SEO. Oh, it's like a component
2: of like a larger thing. Right.
3: Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. As opposed to a non-designer who might just be looking for inspiration. And that's where things like the packaging really comes into play. People are more willing to make an impulse purchase because they see something. It looks good. It looks pretty. And then they go off and buy it. Let's get into the actual
2: kind of design aspect of this, which is what are some of the like design lessons for marketers? I think we all fundamentally know how important design is to marketing. I think that traditionally, you know, the, uh, kind of Madison Avenue style mm-hmm. agency style, so much is focused on mm-hmm. that perhaps too much, uh, perhaps yeah. much, too much, but I think now with, with how visual Facebook is and Twitter, I don't know if you've ever had the thing where you're, scrolling around on Twitter and you're in a pocket where you don't have service enough to load the images mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my goodness, this just, <laughs> this just got so ugly. I think having striking imagery is a huge differentiator for marketers and having things that are beautiful and consistent and align with your brand. What are some of the takeaways about design that you've learned working in a place that is experts at, at design?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of these things I didn't necessarily know going into a new space, but I've been in the design space for a little bit now. So one is design is increasingly a commodity. What I mean by that is that good design is becoming a standard. I think people's expectation for good design, whether it's hardware design or how an ad is presented or how a user experience is designed is increasingly leveling up. And so as a result of that, you have to have really good design just to kind of be par with the course. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you look at sites,
2: all of these different, you know, website creators, and it's like, I forget what it's called, but it's like newsprint or whatever the theme is that you see like all the time now on websites. I mean, having a poor looking website is just mm-hmm. not even possible these days to to be able to And There's still some horrific ones. And images are so so important to in a marketer's toolkit. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any like ROI
3: or case studies or things of like the effects that good design has? You know, I don't have any case studies where I could kind of present data. I wish I had those things because they definitely exist. But you know, what I can say is, you know, consumer trends have changed over time. And, you know, the, I think the theme of the internet over the course of the last couple of years is getting closer and closer to authenticity and as a result you know you talk about the stock photo example of the stock photo you're so sick of seeing you know i think a lot of people have that version and as a tangent come work at creative market for a month and you'll see about a million of those things just out in the world just constantly bugging you but you know as a result you know marketers need to connect with their audiences in authentic way. And, you know, design is is kind of two components. It's one is it's a way to communicate. And the second one is it's a way to experience a product. And so, you know, marketers are really, really concerned with how do you actually communicate? How do you create messaging and visuals that A is aligned with the brand and B actually resonates and design matters in that case. So with the ability to A/B test, to do split testing, and all the sort of mm-hmm. things that
2: we can do—that's now in our toolkit—design is ex- increasingly measurable. It uh, is, yeah, especially for for growth and analytics. And one of the first things that you know, as as you came into your role at Creative Market, was doing an analysis of paid channels, eliminating poor ROI campaigns, doing split testing and testing scalability and all that. What were some of the insights that you really glean from being able to apply a rigorous analytical mind to some of the things that might not have had that in the past?
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a really good question. You know, one is localization matters. You know, something that I found right out of the gates was we just had very, very different performance across various geographies and certain messaging was resonating in certain areas and not resonating in other areas. And, you know, that can be experienced both on kind of the top of the funnel where you're actually trying to acquire somebody, but then even in the product where you have folks who are retained at a different rate, who have different LTVs once they actually get into the product. And so the, the biggest takeaway was just segment, 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 understand segmentation, understand things like payback period. And will somebody from England you know, give you that money at the same rate as somebody from maybe Germany? And the answer is, of course, it depends You know, other things I learned, and a lot of this stuff I think just reinforces a lot of marketing kind of one-on-ones and best practices. But, you know, one of them is you need to have a clear, consistent message. You know, oftentimes when I looked at a lot of the creative that was doing really well on some of the more visual ad platforms, platforms like Facebook at the time, it became pretty obvious in retrospect in that, hey, this messaging, it's clear, it communicates the value of the product, whereas other messaging maybe was just a little bit more muddled. The other thing that I learned was some of the the ads that I thought were doing really well, if I just looked at the platform data, were actually underperforming when you looked into the product. And- Interesting. Yeah, so we would have these ads that- were kind of general purpose and they tried to speak to a broad audience. Yeah. And we thought that was a good thing. Like, let's just reach the broadest audience like, possible. Bro- like,
0: quote
2: unquote, brand play,
3: right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could call it that. Because um, you're like, oh, I'm reaching
2: a lot of people for a cheap amount of money. Yeah. This is the equivalent to like a TV ad or something like that. It's reaching a lot of people. It's getting our message out there.
3: Exactly. Yep. Yep. And so, You know, what what we ended up finding is that a lot of these folks just were really bad fits for the product itself. The product didn't necessarily have product market fit with some of these audiences. And so we found that using things like technical language and language that only certain groups would resonate with in conjunction, of course, with targeting, maybe Change the numbers on the platform, but ended up leading to much more favorable numbers once people got into the product. So again, you know, going to the Holy grail metric of LTV and kind of optimizing for that. You know, it's funny. So I I ran a conference a
2: few years ago and it was for military veteran startups. Mm -hmm. And we, we did split tested messaging by branch of the military but okay. not by saying like you know hey were you in the army were you in the navy or anything like that we were doing it based off of certain slogans that only people in those military services would use mm-hmm. and they performed like way higher than all the rest of our copy yeah, but it's stuff exactly, like that same like, learning right colloquialisms mm-hmm. um these type of things that you know, are not meant to be widespread. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great insight. And especially when you're getting someone to like take the next step in your funnel, because I think a lot of times that type of like, what gets somebody to click? Well, when you're paying per click, yep, <laughs> exactly. You really don't want a lot of people to click on the mm-hmm. most broad ad because, uh, you know, a lot of the people that are, you make a really good ad and that's very clickable. Cause it's it sounds fun. It's like, Hey, you know, these 10 photos of, uh, whatever, dachshund puppies, it's like, everybody's going to click on that because they want to see dachshund puppies, but those people aren't looking to, you know, buy design templates.
3: Yeah. I mean, we learned the exact same lesson through content, actually. If we go back a few years... Uh, we had a pretty big content machine at Creative Market, it was started by my predecessor. And we became known as the BuzzFeed for design on Facebook because we became so good at just gaming the Facebook yeah. algorithm yeah, and yeah. creating this content that would get, a single post would get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views within a period of a month. Wow. Um, and so had incredible success there. And then over time, we kind of built out the analytics infrastructure to really understand the value of content. Uh, because of course, as a Startup, We want to be pretty intentional about the things that we do invest in and don't invest in. And so we could understand things like, all right, if somebody viewed that piece of content, what do they do for the next six months? We essentially built Google analytics in house just to get at some of this data and uh, no surprise learning was, Hey, there's some of this content that is just getting a tremendous amount of eyeballs. Not converting anybody. Like yeah. it's great that you create a nice, funny piece of content that's getting shared out, I and mean, there's you know some benefit to that, right? There's and, some yeah, brand. Yeah, I was just
0: gonna say.
2: I mean, there's I, there's some very legit benefit, especially in your stage of company, mm-hmm. right? Is like getting your name out there to a large percentage of people that becomes becomes synonymous with things that are good. Mm-hmm. Is, is a good thing to have. Yeah. When then those same people know who you are. And when you serve them ads, then they click on them. Yep. And then it costs you a ton of
3: money. That <laughs>
2: is uh, when keeping it real goes wrong. Yeah, exactly.
3: Exactly. So the short of it is, you know, over time we've realized, all right, there's some content that obviously it's more geared towards a conversion. Let's create more of that stuff. Maybe it's not going to get hundreds of thousands of eyeballs, but it'll get a thousand of the right eyeballs. And then there's other pieces of content that, again, might get a few thousand, maybe a few tens of thousands of eyeballs, but it's really good as a kind of point within a customer's journey to then make a a subsequent purchase or a first-time purchase later on uh, in their life cycle. When it comes to mistakes that you've made or that you see experienced
2: marketers make with this mm-hmm. type of optimization? What are kind of some of those common themes that you've seen over the past few years? Does it have to be specific to
3: this type of optimization?
2: No, no, no. It could be anything. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I guess specifically around like waste. I, I think the idea yep. of waste is really interesting because... There's waste for learning and there's waste for just, you know, hey, we're going to reach too many people Mm -hmm. with a TV spot or something like that. And like, we know we're going to bake waste into the calculation of how we do stuff versus, no, we've just actually been tracking all these people and it actually was just straight up wasted.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. I think things that I've learned, things that I think other folks have learned, uh, things that other folks haven't quite learned yet. You know, one of them is, and I've already kind of touched on this, just really pay attention to... Metrics down the funnel because those really, really matter. And especially at a startup where money matters and cash flow really matters. Like, that's something that I personally didn't fully appreciate early on is just how important cash flow is to be able to continue to invest and to continue to invest in some of these channels. Like, pay attention to all those things because if you can get that money back faster, even if Customer A is worth the exact same amount as customer B. It'll allow you to reinvest and get more data, generate more learnings, and just kind of move faster, generally speaking. So that's that's one big thing. You know, I think a lot of marketers they remove themselves and maybe not even intentionally. So, from the fundamentals of marketing and, you know, the two fundamentals are A just understanding your users and then B kind of understanding the data. And I think a lot of leaders have a tendency to kind of get further and further away from that, but those are really those really form the the, the bedrock for all optimization, whether it's happening via content, whether it's happening via paid platform or any other channel itself. Beyond that, you know, I think people get excited by channels. You know, there's a whole idea of, hey, channels are kind of drying up right now. Not a lot of new massive platforms to take advantage of. And so every time something new comes up, I see a lot of marketers just jump on it. And sometimes there can be an advantage there. We jumped on Instagram stories really, really early just because we felt there was a supply imbalance or a supply demand imbalance rather, where a lot of eyeballs, not too much demand. We've seen that kind of dry up over time. The problem is that there's an opportunity cost to that. I see people kind of get a little trigger happy and they, they lose sight of some of the fundamental channels or even single channel that's really driving their business.
2: Yeah. I think that there's a balance that, you know, we, when we talked to Beth Comstock and she, we, we mentioned this a lot, but how, you know, 10, 10 to 15% of your marketing budget needs to be on like pure experimentation mm-hmm. with like nothing No expectation of, you know, of a, of a, you know, break even essentially, or Mm -hmm. an expectation that you could just straight up lose it all. And I think that that's the important part is like knowing, you know, knowing your 70% that you need to hit, knowing the 20% that might hit. And then, you know, knowing the 10% that it's like, this could return us a ton, it could return us you know, a lot of nothing, but uh, at least we're going to learn from it.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I I agree with that approach. I mean, without getting prescriptive on the actual number, you know, you always have to be doing new things. You know, I think one other thing I'll just add to the list is you need owners for a lot of these channels to do them right. Um, I think sometimes people will jump into a channel. I see this for, with earlier stage startups that advise, they'll jump into a channel like paid We'll try it out for two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month or two. And like, oh, you know what? This is not working. We're totally. not getting a favorable ROI. And you actually need an owner. You need a lot of time to invest in a channel, even like paid that has kind of that immediate return and that immediate feedback to really prove out, is this a channel that will work for us and scale to a certain degree? Yeah, we, we see that a lot as well. It's like, hey, we're going to test this one,
2: you know, Facebook ads for three campaigns or something like, that. I've seen this in, in the past. Yeah.
3: You're just like, that's it? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to spend $2,000 on Facebook ads. It's like, okay. Yeah. Um, and then what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's do some lightning
2: round. You ready? Okay. Let's do it. Lightning round presented by Pardot. Our good friends. We love Pardot. We use them. They're great. Check them out. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most
3: fun? I'm pretty competitive by nature. So Strava is probably the most fun. Uh, just because oh, yeah. I like to compete. Um, I don't want to say I'm good or I'm in you know, incredible shape or anything like that, but uh, I've been having a lot of fun with that app lately. Favorite vacation spot? Baja California, CEO Cortez. Grew up traveling there and uh, have a lot of really, really good memories there. Oh, nice.
2: If you're listening, Aeromexico, we want to bring you on Marketing Trends to talk about the uh, amazing ad that they just did. That was a great campaign. So good. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to do the 23andMe so that we can bring them on the show. <laughs> All right, what what ad campaign have you seen recently that you're envious of?
3: So the last campaign um, that kind of struck a chord with me was the new Fiverr campaign, where I think they did a lot to elevate the quality of their marketplace. Fiverr, if you're familiar with the product, is a yep. place where you can spend you know $5, sometimes a lot more than that, just to get some simple things done. So you want to record a little jingle, you want a little logo, and they are earlier campaigns, I felt like didn't necessarily kind of promote the quality that can be found on the marketplace. Totally. And there's a newer campaign that they're running right now, which is really trying to kind of connect people to that quality, show that there are professionals and actually really talented people on that platform. And so it's is almost part of this kind of larger repositioning. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a good move on their part.
2: Yeah. It's a great, it's a great point where a lot of the early stuff that was, you know, for five bucks, I can have somebody like, you know, sing a song and do some like crazy stuff. They've actually like shifted their whole market. I'm just looking at it now. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's total, total, total change in, in uh, positioning. Interesting. Any favorite follow on, uh, on social media? Oh my gosh.
3: There's, there's a lot of favorite follows. Just a lot of folks in kind of the growth space, a lot of folks in the product space. So folks like Casey Winners, Brian Before. Yeah, a lot of folks that your audience may be familiar with yep. already. Favorite uh, podcast or book that you've read or listened to recently? Um, I'm currently reading Sapiens. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's a really good book. I mean, one of the points that I think was really underscored in that book is the the power of storytelling. And I kind of just tie that back to marketing and tie that back to product and, you know, humans over the course of tens of thousands of years, and even more than that have really developed storytelling as the medium in which they communicate. And that's really what marketing is. A lot of marketing is kind of founded in. And so that's a great read in terms of podcasts, a lot of different podcasts. So Recode, Decode, really likes her techery, great podcast. Yeah, the Sapien stuff is so interesting
2: because, I mean, it truly, like our brains are hardwired mm-hmm. to survive by remembering stories so that we don't do the same stuff that our ancestors did. Yeah, exactly. Um,
3: yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's the most powerful technology there is. I mean, it, it puts it into context that you're dealing, at the end of the day, if you're building product, if you're trying to market to people, like these are people who... They're people, and you know over the course of tens of thousands of years, evolution has created certain behaviors, and those behaviors are underlying behaviors that are still going to drive how people think and operate and what motivates them today. And that stuff doesn't go away; it doesn't change like so many other things do change in tech.
2: Yeah, we always talk about being remarkable and making things that are that you would actually share with you know a loved one or a spouse or. You know somebody, a family friend, or whatever, yes, so much of marketing is not memorable yet we can all remember our favorite stuff so
3: yeah it's it's too bad. It's a shame, I think that'll change over time worst advice you've ever got so I don't know if this is the worst advice that I've ever gotten, but it's advice that I at least disagree with, so hopefully there's something here you know, I think within Silicon Valley the kind of default mode of operating is, you know, every 18 months, sometimes even less than that, you need to switch companies, go do something else. And a lot of people actually do this really successfully. I know people in my personal network who have been able to do that and jump around and go from company to company to company. But I think there's something to be said for deep work. And, you know, there's a concept of deep work as it relates to just spending a few hours working on a problem, being completely heads down, kind of in a state of flow. But I think there's also this concept of deep work that spans years. And, you know, my advice to folks would be you can build a competitive advantage from a personal standpoint by really embedding yourself in a particular industry and selling to a particular customer over time. And, you know, I see these folks who over the course of five years, they're selling to five different customers, five different products, maybe five completely different industries. And, you know, I think back to my own success and a lot of it has, you know, come from the fact that I've been embedded in the design industry for four or five years now. And I feel like I have a tremendous amount to learn still, but I think it's really, really helped me make good decisions and uh, kind of help the business out. So not the worst advice. You know, I think there's a a case to be said to to jump around a little bit, but advice nonetheless.
2: No, I'd 100% agree. I think there is a lot of value there. And I think the other piece of that is that you do need to build across multiple industries. You need to build those experiences. That doesn't mean you have to go work at other companies. Mm-hmm. Like you can build those whether it's advising startups, whether it's, you know, doing some just helpful work or whatever it is. Yep. There's a lot of ways to get exposure to those types of industries or those types of things without changing your entire job. And I think Mm -hmm. there's also something really valuable there about starting, especially in marketing and sales, the revenue generation side of the house of like, if you're talking about lifetime value, like true lifetime value of a Mm -hmm. customer, and they're going to be working with you for a long time, the expectation that... I'm going to be there a long time too, I think is important. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the piece that is missed is like when you're thinking about next quarter or you're thinking about, you know, the end of year. And when you have that mindset of like just getting to next, Mm -hmm. that you lose the sight of the fact that, you know, we want to have customers for life Mm -hmm. and or for their life cycle that they're using the type of products that we offer. And I think that that long termism is is lost when you're kind of looking for what's next.
3: Yeah, it's true. It's true. You can start making a lot of decisions that are optimizing for the short term. And, you know, having a five, 10 year perspective really changes how you make decisions today. Obviously, you know, for us, like at a company level, we, we value two things. We value decisions that are immediate and will have an immediate return. And we also value decisions that are longer term in nature and might take a little bit longer to kind of pay back. So, gosh, this is not very lightning-y, but uh,
2: there's <laughs> a great talk by the former VP of product of Netflix, whose name I escapes me right now, Gibson Biddle, where he talks about how early on at Netflix, they built in basically three increments, 5, 10, and 15 years. And when you start thinking of things in 5, 10, and 15 years, all of the like- short-term ism is -hmm. immediately gone Mm because you're just like, okay, well, is that going to be something that's like a lasting strategy for that? And I think it's a really interesting mental exercise to do.
3: Yeah, I agree. Last question. All right.
2: What technology or thing are you
3: most excited about for the future of marketing? That's a great question. You know, for me, I think it's it's immersive experiences. I think we're really, really early in immersive experiences. And what I mean is specifically AR, VR. And uh, it's exciting from both a product standpoint, especially given the fact that I'm in the design industry. And, you know, I think these experiences will have a major component in how people experience products, how marketers communicate their products out. And, you know, this is, it's a longer term time horizon until we actually see some of this stuff manifest. So it's something I'm kind of watching over the course of five plus years, five, ten years. But I think it's uh it's a skill set that designers are going to need to be able to develop in these new mediums, just like print designers needed to develop for the web once the web came up and a lot of web designers need to develop for mobile. I think a lot of these designers will have to develop for AR specifically and VR too, and I think a lot of marketers are going to have to figure out how to actually create experiences within this new medium. So it's a paradigm shift, and paradigm shifts are fun.
2: Are you guys going to add any AR, VR types creators onto the platforms
3: soon? We have a few. We have a few within the three D category. Oh, uh, no kidding. Yeah, that's so, fun. Yeah, so there's a few things there. You know, I, personally, of course, I'm bullish on this space, and so I think in time, over the course of the next couple of years, will be taking a more serious look at how we can expand out our offering there and give folks the, uh, the content that they need. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know that. Yeah. There's a lot of talent on the marketplace.
2: Wow. All right. Paul, thanks for hanging out. Any fine, anything
3: else, anything we miss? Uh, no, I don't think there's anything else. You know, you guys can check out creativemarket.com. You're interested in a a vp of marketing role and you know really helping shape the future creative market feel free to reach out to ian but ian thank you thank you for your time yeah thanks so much
1: thanks for listening to this episode of marketing trends marketing trends is brought to you by salesforce pardot world-class b2b marketers use pardot to generate and nurture leads close more deals and maximize roi at every stage of the sales cycle Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
0: You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster, and on a much larger scale. Brightspot content management system has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.